0: So Leviticus chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar." When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons, with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons who were left. Take the grain offering that remains of the offering made by fire to the Lord, and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord, for so I have commanded the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your sons' due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire, to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you, by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Dithamar, the sons of Aaron who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its place was not, or its blood was not brought in to, inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Mes- Moses heard that, he was content. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this place where we can gather together for worship. And we pray that you would be glorified and honored now, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us as we consider this passage of Scripture and to see and appreciate the typological significance, how it points us forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We give praise to you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We give praise to you for that gospel of our salvation, his life of perfect obedience, his death as a sacrifice, and a substitute uh, uh, an atonement on that cross and his resurrection again the third day. So God, give us that appreciation and cause us to reflect upon the, this good news, not just on the Lord's day, but each and every day. Forgive us now for all of our sin and unrighteousness, and we pray through Christ our Lord, amen. Well, as we come to Leviticus chapters 8 to 10, as I said, it's a big chunk of scripture, but to appreciate it in its context, we need to go back the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus and Leviticus are inextricably connected. And the book of Exodus takes up three particular themes. It deals with deliverance. God delivers his people out of bondage in Egypt, according to chapters 1 to 19, or chapters 1 to 18. And then it deals with the theme of uh, demand. So from 19 to 24, God demands or gives laws to the children of Israel, how they are to conduct themselves as his people. And then the last theme in the book of Exodus is dwelling. And so from chapters 25 to 40, we see an emphasis upon the tabernacle. God will dwell with his people. In fact, you can turn back to Exodus chapter 25. So Exodus chapter 25 begins what we call ceremonial law. So the moral law of God is given in in Exodus chapter 20. Then we have the judicial laws, how uh, Israel was to live in their tenure in the land in chapters 21 to 23. Chapter 24 is the ratification of the old covenant. And then in chapters 25 to 40, as I said, they get detailed instructions on building the tabernacle. And then toward the end of the book of Exodus, they actually engage in that activity. They build the tabernacle. Notice the emphasis in chapter 25 at verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So God brought the children of Israel out of that place of bondage so that he may dwell in their midst, so that he could be their God and that they would be his people. You see that same Emphasis in chapter 29 at verses 45 and 46. Notice, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then you see the same emphasis in chapter 30 at verse six, and you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. So you see that, God will dwell with his people. As Dale Ralph Davis says, the God of the bush, Exodus chapter three, is the God of the mountain, Exodus chapter 19, and he is the God of the tent in Exodus chapters 25 to 40. So the God who delivers is the God who commands, and he is the God who dwells with his people. So, as I said, they build the tabernacle. And if you turn to Exodus chapter 40, the book ends on a note of tension. There is a bit of tension after the tabernacle is constructed. So notice in chapter 40 at verse 34. Tabernacle is built, and then we read, then the cloud covered the tabernacle. This cloud is what many refer to as the Shekinah glory of God. It signifies or demonstrates or communicates God's presence in a particular place. We know God is immense. We know that God is omnipresent. There's not one specific place where God is. God fills everything but in the Old Testament and in the New Testament we see this emphasis on God's special presence and that's what you have here at the tabernacle so then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle there's the tension The place is built. It's a dwelling place of God Most High. But to advance that theme from dwelling place to meeting place, there are certain things that need to happen. Moses, arguably, is the holiest one in Israel. And yet he cannot enter into the tabernacle when the glory cloud of the Lord is there. And so that's where the book of Leviticus comes to pass. Leviticus answers the question, how does sinful man approach a thrice holy God? And the answer is very simple, through sacrifice and through priesthood. In the language of Michael Morales, Israel was taught that sin must be dealt with. Sin must be expiated. The way for a sinful man to go into the presence of a holy God is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. And that's what Leviticus solves. That's the tension that is resolved here through sacrifice and through priesthood. So then as we move to the book of Leviticus, you see that emphasis initially on sacrifice. There's detailed legislation given on how the priests were to engage in the sacrificial system. The first bit of instructions goes for the laity or the non-priests, and then later on the priests are dealt with specifically. So you have a burnt offering, you have a grain offering, you have a peace offering, a sin offering, and then a guilt offering. So this is the means by which we provide the bloody knife and the burning altar. And it's priests that are supposed to undertake this particular task. So that's sort of the larger, broader context. Now, when we go to, chapter 8 we see the ordination of the priesthood Now they were at Sinai for about 11 months and it took several months to get the instructions and to build the tabernacle. So the anticipation is growing. God is dwelling there, but they can't meet with him yet. They need this prescription. They need this solution. They need a functioning priesthood and the sacrificial system so that they can draw nigh unto God. So now we come to fruition or application. So you have, as I said in chapter eight, the ordination of the priesthood In chapter 9, you have the ministry of the priesthood. And then in chapter 10, you have the judgment on the priesthood. So I want to look at this. We won't spend a lot of time in chapter 8, a bit more time in chapter 9, and then our main focus will be there on chapter 10. But notice in chapter 8, so the text begins with the command of God. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and then in verse 4, so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And then in verse 5, this is what the Lord commanded Commanded to be done. you see that repeated in verse nine verse thirteen verse seventeen verse twenty one verse twenty nine verse thirty four verse thirty six all that in light of the detailed description of tabernacle and the laws governing it in exodus chapters twenty five to forty So what do we learn from this it 's not man who is the innovator with reference to an approach to God. The the text is very specific. If man and God are to meet together, it must be divine initiative. It must be a divine solution. It must be a remedy provided by God himself. The children of Israel were not given liberty to disobey. The children of Israel were not given the, the ability to engage in innovation. They were not to be creative when it came to the worship of God. They were to be obedient, and that's the emphasis here. But as well, notice the grace of God underscored there in chapter 8 at verse 2. It says, take Aaron and his sons with him. Now, Aaron has been mentioned prior to this because, remember, it's Aaron and his family that will function as the priests. But Aaron, as far as we remember from the book of Exodus, didn't do too well in that incident with reference to the golden calf. Remember that? Israel was waiting, or the people of Israel were waiting for Moses, and they complained, and they grumbled, and and then they brought their gold to Aaron, and Aaron forged it, and he made a golden calf. I mean, his story really doesn't stand up to any scrutiny. Yeah, the people handed me this gold. I, I threw it into the fire and sort of out popped this calf. No, he may not have initiated the idolatry, but he was certainly complicit in it. And so that now we have Aaron restored underscores the grace of God. I think it's very similar to Peter in the New Testament. Peter denies his Lord three times. We might think that's it for Peter. He's off, he's done. We gotta cancel Peter so that he's never functioning in the ministry again. But what happens on the day of Pentecost? We see the grace of God displayed, not only through the preaching of Peter, but that it was Peter who was preaching. So there is this grace and mercy and forgiveness by God to his sinning people. And so we see that grace. And as you move through chapter 8, you see that they obey Moses. We've got the priestly garments described. We've got the anointing conducted. We've got the sacrifices offered. And then we'll look at the summary in chapter 8 at verses 31 to 36. Notice there was specified a portion for the priests. The only sacrifice that the priest did not eat from was the burnt offering. They only received the skin from that. But all the other offerings the priest got a portion. After some was burned unto God Most High in terms of his portion the priest got a portion. Why? Because they didn't get tribal allotments of the land. They didn't have fields and they didn't have farms and they didn't have all that sort of thing in order to feed their families. So how did they feed their families? Based on their priestly work in service to the tabernacle. And so built into the various sacrifices was a portion for the priest. The peace offering, there was a portion built in for the worshiper himself. So the worshiper and the priest got to participate in the peace offering. But all the other offerings, it was the priest who had a right and benefit from that provision by God. So that's what verses 31 and 32 specify. And then notice this transition for the priest in verse, thir- uh, uh, excuse me, verse 33. So look at chapter eight, verse 33. And you shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are ended. When they were at Walmart, they weren't on official business. When they were, you know, watching TV with their kids, I'm just using the vernacular here, they weren't on official duty. But when they were set apart and consecrated and anointed with that holy oil, they were set apart for a period of seven days. This is important information for how to understand some of the situation in chapter 10. So that's basically what's involved there. There is this transition from normalcy to priestly activity and it comes via consecration and oil. And then notice the purpose for the priesthood in verse 34. This is how I started off. How does sinful man get into the presence of a holy God? Notice in verse 34, as he has done this day, so the Lord has commanded to do to make atonement for you. The function of the priests was for themselves to have atonement wrought, but as well, they were to perform these sacrifices to make atonement for the children of Israel. And then notice the warning in verses 35 and 36. Therefore, you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you may not die. For so I have been commanded. So Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. As far as I know, we don't have a New Testament equivalent to this. If Pastor Mike or I can't make it into the pulpit, I don't think God's going to kill us. But in this particular situation, God says that if the priests renege on their responsibility, they may die. And I think there's a purpose here for this uh, uh, particular piece of legislation. And I think Wenham sums it up well. He says, a warning is given about the necessity of exact obedience to divine prescriptions for worship. Keep the Lord's watch so that you do not die. It was not the first time such a warning had been given. The base of Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. What does God say? Oh, anybody can come on up. Just come on up to the very top or summit of the mountain. We'll We'll just hang out together. No, it was only for Moses to go up into that, that holy of holies, as it were. And if you look at the mountain, and you look at the tabernacle, and you look at the temple, you've got sort of this common area, then you've got a more holy place, and then you've got the holy of holies at the summit. The structure is similar in terms of temple, tabernacle, and the mountain of God Most High. He goes on to say that warning is repeated here. It anticipates and explains the disaster that overtook Nadab and Abihu, who presumed presumed to offer fire, which he had not commanded. See, I think Bible readers come to chapter 10 in the book of Leviticus, if they make it that far. I think the common thing is for somebody to say, I'm going to get a Bible and, and I'm going to read the Bible. And they start off in Genesis and there's a lot happening in those first 11 chapters. I mean there's just a lot going on. And then chapter 12 comes and the narrative slows way way down. Now it's Abraham and his family and we go on and yet that's still compelling and people read it. They might make it through the book of Exodus at least up to chapter 24 25 to 40 in the temple and the, or the tabernacle and the priest. I'm not sure i can make that and then they get to leviticus and they're like forget it uh you know but if they do dip into chapter 10 they say that that seems unkind Uh, i mean these these fellows they they offered up strange fire but but you know we have pastors now repelling from from cables into their congregations or or writing their harley davidsons into church services and telling story What, what was the big deal Well, God had commanded there was a specific way to worship him, and he had warned them that if they reneged on that, they would die. So the Nadab and Abihu incident is not out of the norm. It's not out of the ordinary. It's not something that should shock our delicate sensitivities. If we're reading the the narrative with any degree of attentiveness, we will see they got... What was promised to them for having offered up profane fire before the Lord. So that's the ordination of the priesthood. It becomes a functioning priesthood. Now notice in chapter 9, you've got the ministry of the priesthood. So chapter 9, you've got the command of Moses, you've got the compliance of the priest, and then you have fulfillment. So drop down to verse 22. And what you have here first is the priestly blessing. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering and peace offerings. Probably the blessing we find in Numbers chapter six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The same blessing that our brother read at the outset of worship in Psalm 67. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us so the priesthood is in action the priesthood is engaged in what they're supposed to be doing they now bless the people of god and then notice that resolution of the tension that we saw in exodus 40. in verse 23 it says and moses and aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting so the dwelling place of god has now become the meeting place with god so this promise of God to dwell in the midst of his people is now realized. It has now come to a fulfillment. It has come to fruition. Moses and Aaron enter into that place. So then they come out and they bless the people. Then notice, then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Again, probably that glory cloud, that Shekinah glory, the emblem, the represent- uh, representation that God most high is in their presence. Now, as I said earlier, it's not that God is locally confined to that cloud. It is representative of his special presence among the people. And then notice specifically what uh, verse 24 says. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. As we see in the remainder of the verse, this is favorable. And it's predicated on obedience to the Lord. When you offer up uh, sacrifices in obedience to God, when you have a functional priesthood doing what it's supposed to do, then God is pleased with that. God sends fire down. God consumes their sacrifice. Now, when we disobey, as Nadab and Abihu does, then that fire comes down from God, but it's lethal. It doesn't consume the sacrifice. It rather consumed the priests because they offered up profane fire before the Lord. But in verse 24, notice, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is worship. This is what happens when you come into the presence of God Most High. Some of you have probably heard of the pastor named Jack Hayford. He was sort of a charismatic or Pentecostal. I'm not sure if he's still alive. I don't keep up with Jack Hayford. Uh, but he, he had this thought, uh, uh, saying one time. He said, you know, Jesus appears to him when he's, when he's shaving in the morning. And it was John MacArthur that said he is alive. Okay, Uh, uh, John MacArthur said, so so what happens when, when Jesus appears to you? This is why I keep shaving. Well, that's not what happens when anybody's confronted with theophany. The manifestation of God's presence in a special way renders men as dead men. When the prophet Isaiah rehearses his call to the prophetic ministry, he saw the Lord high and, and exalted, lofty. The train of his robe filled the entire temple. He heard the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, the, the whole earth is filled with his glory. What does Isaiah do? Oh, there's my buddy, there's my pal, there's my friend. No, he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Why? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. The prophet Ezekiel gets a vision of God most high. What happens to him? Does he keep shaving? No, he falls as a dead man. John on the island of Patmos for, the, for the, 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 the word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus sees the risen, glorified Christ. And what happens to John? He falls on his face as a dead man. Of course, Christ puts his hand on his shoulder and tells him to not be afraid. But that's the response. That's the reaction. That's why our churches we're not old covenant churches. We're not governed by Exodus 25 to 40. But it doesn't mean there should be no reverence. There should be no awe in the presence of a thrice holy God that there should be just joke telling and, and, and storytelling and, and just camaraderie and just a, a horizontal emphasis among the professing people of God. We've come to do holy business with the living and true God to fall on our faces and to shout for joy is quite consistent, uh, consistent in his presence. Remember the Psalm serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I think that's what's going on in this meeting. When God, comes down, the glory cloud shines upon them. Again, Gordon Wenham says, on three other occasions, God showed his approval of a burnt offering by sending heavenly fire to burn it up. When the birth of Samson was announced to Manoah and his wife, when Solomon dedicated the temple, and when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Each time, confronted by the awe-inspiring reality of God, the worshipers fell to the ground and praised God. And I've tried to be reminding our congregation. We're going through the book of Leviticus in our Wednesday night study. I preached this for our Lord's Supper service last week because it's so relevant. And I try to emphasize, though we don't have an Exodus 25 to 40 governing new covenant worship, that doesn't mean there isn't commandment governing new covenant worship. The covenant or uh, the new covenant has within it positive law, which governs our approach to God. We don't have the right to innovate. We don't have the right to, to, to invent. We don't have the right to be creative. The last thing you want in a pastor is creativity. You want obedience in the pastor. Obedience to God with reference to his solemn charge to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Why? Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And as we saw in the Psalm this morning, they hate Christ. So what's God's answer? I'm going to give them Christ. When they hate sound doctrine, you know what the response is? Give them more sound doctrine. They don't know what they need. They don't know what's good for them. You rather be obedient and faithful to that solemn task. So the people fall, they shout or they shout, uh, shouted and fell on their faces. So back to when He says, each time confronted by the awe-inspiring reality of God, the worshipers fell to the ground and praised God. Leviticus Leviticus 9.24 says they shouted. The word translated shout means a loud cry, usually one of joy. It is often coupled with other words expressing praise and joy at God's ways and works. These episodes show that the worship of God involves a total response of man to God. Again, brethren, this is biblical. Now, we don't have the priesthood. We don't have the burnt offerings. We don't come to the, to the Lord's house on a given day and, and take our animal from our flock and, and cut its throat and then hand it over to the priest so that he can do his task in offering up some to God and keeping back a portion to himself. Yeah, We don't have all that, but new covenant worship is a meeting with God Almighty. In Ephesians 2.18 and Ephesians 2.22, we learn that in new covenant worship, the worshiper comes to the father through the son in the spirit. And if that's the case, brethren, it demands our attention. It demands our affection. As Wenham says here in his commentary on Leviticus 9.24, it demands our entirety. We don't just give God a portion. We don't just give God a piece. We don't give God just a part. He says, more than that, they fell on their faces. God's greatness and holiness cannot be ignored. He must be acknowledged by our whole being. Nothing less is adequate. And that brings us finally to the judgment on the priesthood in chapter 10. Now, notice what chapter 10 does not do. Then eight days later. Then one month later. Now, Moses does that throughout his writings, Moses tells us in chapter 8 at verse 1, that after eight days, that there are these time sort of indicators out, uh, throughout the, the narrative in the, book, uh, in the Pentateuch. But here it doesn't do that. What's the implication? It's still going. They've met for worship. They're at the tabernacle. The priests are consecrated. They're on duty. They're cutting animals up and they're presenting it to Yahweh now come here, here comes nadab and abihu and notice the context chapters one to nine provide detailed legislation on the sacrifices again i'm not making this up i just summarize the the burnt offering the grain offering the peace offering the sin offering the guilt offering you've all read at leviticus if you haven't shame on you and you need to that's my lecturing for the day you need to i'm going to scold you again read leviticus it's all about jesus But with reference to that, there's detailed instructions on how you're supposed to approach Yahweh. So we've got detailed legislation, and then we have the example of divine approval. Chapter nine, verses 22 to 24. They offer up the sacrifice. God is pleased with the sacrifice. God sends fire down upon the sacrifice. The people see it, they shout, and they fall down. Now Nadab and Abihu come along, and they offer up strange fire. You kind of want to give them a shake. I mean, you can't because of what God does in terms of his giving them a shake. But this is folly. It underscores or indicates to us that it's not just the law, but it's the willingness and the heart. Attitude by the spirit that enables compliance with that law. So notice the judgment on Nadab and Abihu is volatile. It is toxic, it is fatal. Verse one, then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord. Now commentators speculate on what was it exactly that they did. I think the next clause makes it sufficiently clear which he had not commanded them. So whatever they did, it was not consistent with God's commands. But just by way of a bit of anticipation in terms of what was it exactly that they did? Some suggest they were drunk. Look in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. Now Aaron is a functioning priest, a functioning high priest. The text up to this point, he's addressing Moses. But now that Aaron is functioning in this capacity, it's Aaron that gets the the instructions on how to regulate the priesthood. Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. Some speculate they were hammered. They walked in, they offered up profane fire, and God killed them. So God, to Aaron says, tell your boys not to get drunk before they minister in the the tabernacle. There's merit to that interpretation. Others suggest, turn over to chapter 16, specifically verse 12, this is the regulation concerning the day of atonement, that whatever they mingled together was something, again, that God had not commanded. So Leviticus uh, 16, 12, then he shall take a censer full of burning coals, of fire from the altar before the Lord, which his hands uh, with his hands full of sweet incense, be beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. So some speculate they got that order wrong. They did something wrong there. Now, I take the third position. And again, this is not you have to believe this or you're going to go to hell. But I think this interpretation makes the most sense. Look at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 16. Again, it deals with the day of atonement. And if you've read the book of Leviticus, you'll know that the day of atonement is central, not only literarily in the book, but theologically in terms of God's dwelling with man. And on the day of atonement, which was once a year, there was only one man that went into the Holy of Holies. You had places for the laity in terms of the courtyard. You had places for the priests in terms of the holy place. But you had one place at one time of the year for one man. And the high priest would take off all of his glorious garment and only have on linen. And he would go into that holy of holies once a year and probably three or four times. He had to offer up blood for the people. He had to offer up blood for himself. And then he took another goat. He laid his hands upon that goat. He confessed the iniquities of Israel. And then he drove that goat out into the wilderness, a beautiful emblem of expiation of the removal of sin. So you've got blood atonement, substitutionary blood atonement. I think that's the significance behind animal sacrifice. That takes the place of the sacrificer. So notice that the day of atonement is linked to God's wrath poured out on Nadab and Abihu. So what might have been their crime? What might have been their sin back in Leviticus chapter 10? They went into the holy of holies. God had not commanded that. He commands one man, the high priest, on the day of atonement. So notice in Leviticus 16, 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat." So in my mind, that makes the best sense in terms of what their particular sin or infraction was that they entered into unauthorized territory. But whatever it may be, the last part of verse one makes it clear, which he had not commanded them. And that stands in sharp contrast to the multitude of times that God did command them, that Moses was obedient, that the people were compliant, and that the priest functioned accordingly. So now Nadab and Abihu come, and for whatever reason, they want to mess up the system. For whatever reason, they want to go against the the revealed will of God Most High. And so the particular judgment, the fire of blessing from chapter 9, verse 24, has become the fire of God's wrath here in chapter 10 at verse 2. Notice, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So imagine the scene, brethren, as I mentioned at our church. If I was preaching and, you know, a lightning bolt came down and and killed me, you'd probably conclude the service... I'm I'm guessing, I'm I'm guessing if, you know, a plane flew into our building and happened to only take out Mike tonight, I know our brethren, they'd probably say, brethren, let's, you know, pray for his family and seek to minister to them as we're able, but we're not going to continue on in worship. That's not what's happening here. God is in the midst of his people. The wrath of God and a couple of dead bodies isn't going to sidetrack that. It's not gonna sideline the mission. There's been a lot of anticipation coming to this. There's been a lot of commandment. There's been a lot of preparation. The death of Nadab and Abihu isn't going to stop corporate worship. And again, that's gonna be, be very clear as you move through chapter 10. So notice, from this particular occasion, Moses, the theologian, Moses, the prophet, Moses, the, the, the revelatory agent of God most high to the children of Israel, gives a theological interpretation. While Nadab and Abihu lay there smoking to death, Moses says, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. That's a pretty stark reality in light of the fuming bodies of Nadab and Abihu there. I doubt anybody raised their hand and said, well, what do you mean, Moses? What what is it you're talking about? We we must treat God as holy. We we must regard him as holy and that the the priest must demonstrate his sanctity among the children. Of course they understood this lesson because Nadab and Abihu were a living or a dead illustration of God's judgment upon errant priests. And so Moses draws out the theology and notice what Aaron does. Aaron held his peace. Now, I don't want to the- uh you know, psychoanalyze Aaron, but these were his sons. You know, he taught him T ball. He Whatever they did back then to play with kids, he, he did that with his sons. And now his sons lay there dead. They have been consumed by the fire of God Most High. Moses reminds him of the sacred mandate to regard God as holy and that the priestly function is before all the people. God must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. So, of course, now they would conclude the worship services and everybody could go get a coffee and, then, and head home. No, the worship service continues, brethren. They continue onward. You know what the first order of business is? Drag Nadab and Abihu out of here. Get their bodies away from the sanctuary. Why? Because that was defilement. In fact, the priests themselves were forbidden to have any contact with a dead body. The high priest never. The lower priest could if they were close relations in terms of family. But that's precisely the emphasis there in verses four and five. Look at Moses called Mishael and Elzevan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come here, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out, out of the camp. Who are the brethren? It's the dead ones that can no longer walk. It's the dead ones that can no longer navigate. It's the dead ones who need to be dragged out by their tunics, and that's precisely what these priests do. Do you think at this juncture anybody would say, well, you know, I'm not in for this. I didn't think there'd be dead bodies and having to move or transport. by"? No, they held their tongue. They held their peace. Why? Because they're in the presence of a holy God. Again, brethren, we look back at Old Covenant worship and we say, man, it was detailed, man, it was legislated, man, it was orchestrated, and man, there was a lot of accouterment." And then we lose sight of the fact that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. And that underscoring some of these prohibitions in the Old Testament is our God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 424, but lo and behold, you turn to the book of Hebrews and then after the apostle, I take it as Paul speaks about acceptable worship and coming into the presence of God. Guess what text he underscores? He says, for our God is a consuming fire. See, in the New Covenant Church, we've lost sight of that. He's a buddy. He's a friend. He's a fellow. He's a little bit better than us. He's not the high king of heaven. We don't have to fear and tremble in his presence. We're just about love. We're just about joy. We're just about peace. Yes, and all those things should be mingled with a holy reverence of the God with whom we have to do. Now, thankfully, he doesn't kill every Nadab and Abihu in this modern age that brings strange fire into the house of God. Thankfully, he doesn't dispense with all these, you know, the, the repelling pastor, or the Harley riding pastor, or the people of God that are simply there for the horizontal benefit. Thankfully, he doesn't do that. But if he did do that, would we be shocked? Would we be amazed? Think about Ananias and Sapphira. What happened to them? Oh yeah, we'll just lie to the Holy Spirit. We'll lie to God himself. We'll keep back some of the money for ourselves and we'll just pretend in our sanctimonious virtue signaling way that we've given everything that we have. They were liars. So what does God do? God kills them, Ananias and Sapphira in a new covenant setting. So it's not as if God has changed. It's not as if God has become kinder and more gentle. Our God is a consuming fire. And with that consuming fire, he often brings judgment upon those who uh, engage in wickedness. So notice in verse five, they went, went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. Now notice in verse six, the priests are forbidden from mourning. Why? Because God is heartless and compassionate listen, and, and he's just this rigorous taskmaster. No, because the priests are on duty. There is sacrifice to be offered. There is sacrifice to be eaten. There is responsibility still. And so verse six, Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You see that? again, it's not because God is without compassion. It's not because God doesn't want you to show any human emotion, but it's because God is in the midst of his people. And there's a particular manner in which those people are supposed to worship while the uh, priests are on duty, while they're consecrated, while they're set apart, they're not to engage in this morning ritual. As Robert Alter uh, comments, he says that is you are not to perform any of the conventional gestures of mourning for your sons have perished in violating the very trust of the sanctuary that has been given to you and your descendants. Instead, you may allow the people as a whole to take up the burden of mourning. And notice that in verse uh, six. Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. Notice that very specifically. You don't want to reap the same thing that they did. Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die. There's that bit in the Gospels where a a lawyer comes up to the Lord Jesus and he says, you know, Jesus, when you say what you're saying, you offend those Pharisees. So what does Jesus do? Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't offend anybody because after all, I'm Jesus. And no, he, he, he upbraids the lawyer. He goes from the Pharisees. The lawyer complains about it. And they say, he's a new lawyer. And he nails him. Same thing here. Not only are you not supposed to mourn this, not only are you not supposed to grieve over this, but you're supposed to remain on your post lest what happened to them happens to you. Again, brethren, God most high is to be worshiped and glorified consistent with who he is. And then in verse 7, you have consecrated status uh, uh, reminded. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So as I said, chapter 8, they were set apart from normal function into holy consecrated service. They're still on the clock. They're still on duty. The show must go on. And therefore, we're not going to suspend this worship service because God Most High sent fire down and killed a couple of renegades. In other words, keep going. Keep moving, keep doing. And then the passage ends with Moses with that particular concern. So verses 8 to 10, God says to Aaron, don't let your sons be intoxicated. Why? Because they need to be able to discern the holy from the unholy and you need to be able to teach the children relative to their approach to God. And then Moses starts to upbraid the priests about eating the sacrifice. That's what he's doing there in verses 12 to 15. I mentioned this earlier, brethren, part of the sacrifice that was requisite was that the priests participate in it so notice the death of nadab and abihu perhaps the stench is still in the air but you don't get to say well you know i'm feeling a bit nauseous i i really wouldn't want to eat this now it seems an unseemly time for us to participate in this aspect moses says no get about your task Obedience is what is required here. So participate in that meat that was set apart for you. Participate in that grain that was set apart for you. Not just you, but your family. Your family will starve to death. If every time the wrath of God comes, you say, well, we can't continue on or function. No, you continue on and you function. And then the chapter ends on a, on a note where Moses is, is concerned that the goat of the sin offering was not eaten. Notice in verse 16, then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar. Remember, it was the burnt offering that was to be burned up in Toto, not the sin offering. There was supposed to be a portion of meat for the priests. So Moses makes inquiry about that goat of the sin offering, and there it was burned up. So he is angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. Priestly benefit and privilege is not suspended by the wrath of God. The obligation upon the priesthood to obey God by way of eating in that sacrifice is not suspended by the wrath of God. The wrath of God in this worship service was part and parcel of this worship service. It didn't stop it. It didn't renege it. It didn't call for any conclusion. And so then notice Aaron's response. And this is a perfectly beautiful response that Moses was content with. Aaron said to Moses, look. This day, now, this is, again, I don't want to psychoanalyze or, you know, psychologize or try to get into the minds of suffering people. But we should try to get in the minds of suffering people from time to time. He just watched his sons die. I could see where there'd be a hesitance about eating the sacrifice. Remember, when the priest was cast to offer sacrifice, he made a sacrifice for himself. So as far as Aaron was concerned, Nadab and Abihu, the priests, the sons of Aaron, had offered up sin offerings and guilt offerings for themselves. But it doesn't seem to have averted the wrath of God. So Aaron's concerned as to whether or not God's going to be okay with him eating in this particular sacrifice. So that's the, the the gist here. Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And such things have befallen me. That's not the typical narcissist that you find on Facebook today. When he says such things have befallen me, he's not adopted this, woe is me, I've got a difficult life and I'm gonna publish it all over social media. Difficult things had befallen him. He had watched the fire of Yahweh come down and approvingly consume the sacrifice in chapter 9. And then he saw that same fire come down from the presence of Yahweh. And instead of consuming the sacrifice, it consumed the very priests who offered it. So such things had befallen him that day. Things that were difficult, things that were a trial, things that were affliction. And so notice... And such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? That's a valid and legitimate question that had not been treated up until this point. We know it was valid and legitimate because of verse 20. So when Moses heard that, he was content. He didn't feel the inclination at this point to theologize and tell him, well, next time... God kills your two sons. Make sure that you eat whatever meat was offered in terms of the sin offering. So in conclusion, big chunk of scripture to simply highlight a few things that I think are necessary in a new covenant setting. Why? First of all, the sacrificial system. Because of theology proper and because of anthropology. Theology proper because God is holy. God is righteous. As the prophet said, his eye is too pure to look approvingly upon any evil. And so, when we consider a thrice holy God, a God who is not like us, it's not like you've got, you know, worm and then dog and then man and then angel and then God. I'm sure Pastor Mike has explained that God is in a different category. He is the infinite, He is the creator. We are the finite, we are the creature. So God's not just a better version of ourselves. God is holy other. And as holy other, God is holy. And as a result of his holiness, sinful man cannot just wander into his presence. Moses in Exodus 40 couldn't go into the meeting place or into the dwelling place before this priesthood and this sacrificial system. So the book of Leviticus underscores to us the holiness of God. And when we come to say the prophet Isaiah, that seems to be a theme with that brother. He refers to Yahweh as the Holy One of Israel, I think around 30 times. In comparison with all the other prophets, I think Jeremiah maybe refers to, it's been, been some time, uh, you know, forgive me if I'm off a bit with the statistics, but the idea is, is that Isaiah addresses him as the Holy One of Israel. That's not surprising. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, lofty, exalted, high, lifted up. That's when the the train filled the temple. That's when the angels antiphonally praised God most high for his holiness, holiness, holiness. And so this holiness of God underscores the book of Leviticus and, and tells us that sinful man can't just wander into his presence. And so the book of Leviticus addresses that. We are sinful men and women. Now, there's a lot of cleanliness laws. There's a lot of things that are not binding upon us in this new covenant era, to be sure. But the principle remains the same. We are a... Uh, a chosen people a chosen generation a royal priesthood a people set apart for god's own glory according to paul, uh, peter in first peter chapter two and so the depravity of man is not only connected to the fall the depravity of man is seen in the golden calf incident but the depravity of man is seen in the sacrificial system how does paul summarize the sacrificial system in hebrews 9:22? without the shedding of blood there is no remission for sin Now, I may have shared this with you at one time or other, but I remember when Tiger Woods got found out for being a serial adulterer. And apparently Tiger Woods was a Buddhist, or is a Buddhist, I don't know anything about him other than he was a good golfer. It's about my extent. And I remember a commentator, a news commentator, had said something on on TV. I mean, this was pretty shocking. He says, Buddhism doesn't work for what Tiger Woods is going through. He needs the redemptive religion of Christianity. I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing that anybody could say that and not be canceled in in this particular environment. But he's right. How does sinful man get into the presence of a holy God? It's through a bloody knife and a burning altar. We're wretched. We don't just wander in. Hey, God, it's good to be here. It's good to see you. It's good to visit with you. It's good to dwell with you, most high. No, we need to come to God on his terms. We need to come to God according to his prescription. We need to come to God according to his provision and his graciousness. And that brings us thirdly to the typological significance of the sacrificial system. How is Jesus referred to? I mentioned this this morning, John 1 29, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice that nobody around John the Baptist said, well, what are you talking about? They might've had a difficulty ascribing that to Jesus but they wouldn't have a difficulty realizing that there was one typified in this Levitical system. There was one typified is, in terms of being a, a man born of a woman who would achieve total victory for his people through his suffering and death. That's what Genesis 3.15 indicates. Genesis 3.19-21 indicates the necessity of blood atonement. When God covered Adam and Eve with those skins, it wasn't like there was a guy in a bear suit who unzipped and then he put that on. He killed the animals before Adam and Eve and clothed them in the skin. When Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah, what's the theme? What's the sort of undergirding lesson there? When Isaac says, we've, we've got the wood, we've, we've got all the materials, we, we've got everything we need, but... But we don't have a sacrifice. What's Abraham say? The Lord will provide. And when Abraham is about to bury the the knife into Isaac and the angel of the Lord stays his hand, lo and behold, they turn and there's a lamb, or a ram rather, caught in the thicket in in, in the scene. And they offer that up in the stead of Isaac. So when the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that encompasses the redemptive religion of Old Covenant worship that is that bloody knife and that burning altar. And it focuses upon the antitype, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final emphasis I want to make is on worship. If you have not heard of the regulative principle of worship, I would suggest that you stay in this church, that you get familiar with uh, chapter 22 in the Confession of Faith. It basically says we're not free to worship God however we want. We're not free to come to God on our terms. We are duty bound to come to God in the manner that he prescribes. We are to add nothing to worship. We are to take nothing away from worship. We are rather to be obedient to all that the Lord has commanded. I think Terry Johnson in his helpful little book on the uh, regulative principle of worship basically reduces it to this. In worship, Christian worship, we preach the word, we pray the word, we read the word, we sing the word, and we see the word. How do we see the word? Pictures, movies, no, the sacraments. We see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. In other words, new covenant worship is regulated by the same God who is a consuming fire, by the same God who instituted the tabernacle and the priesthood in Exodus 25 to 40. The same God that wiped out Nadab and Abihu for offering up strange fire to the Lord. Brethren, honestly, if I opened up an edition of Christianity today, that would not surprise me if pastors all over America started dying in public worship. I wouldn't say, boy, that's odd, that's strange. I think it's odd and strange that we think Christian worship is what it's been reduced to in so many places and in so many circles. I'm not saying everything that Surrey Reformed Baptist Church does is absolutely positively 100% biblical and right. I'm not saying that a free grace Baptist as well, but I am suggesting that those churches and those pastors and those theologians and those commentaries that understand that God is in charge of how we approach him are at least on the right path Path. They're at least on the right track to ask the question, not what do the people want when they come for public worship, but rather what does God demand when we come for public worship? And if we're not here clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, we're not here cleansed in the precious blood of Jesus, then the first order of business for you is to believe the gospel. It is to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith because justification is by God's grace alone through through faith alone in Christ alone. And that is the first place wherein we learn how to worship our great God. It's to come through the mediator. It's to come through the great high priest. It is to come through the one who saves to the uttermost all who draw nigh unto him, uh, 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 draw nigh to God uh, through him. And so if you're not a believer tonight, there's a lot of things you probably didn't get. And I apologize. But one thing I want to leave you with is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the reason. He is the purpose. He is the focal point. He is the scope as to why this sacrificial system was in place. You can read Leviticus. And what it does is it points you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the clarity concerning the fact that you are holy, that you are awesome, and that you do prescribe the way, the manner in which sinners come to you. We thank you for that bloody knife and that burning altar realized in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that great high priest who, in contrast to the ironic and Levitical priesthood, didn't have to offer up sacrifices first for himself because he was indeed wholly harmless and undefiled we bless you and we praise you for your goodness to us in the gospel of our salvation we pray for this church we pray for the church in chilliwack and in armstrong and for the church plant in dryden we pray for churches all throughout this country and to the uttermost parts of the earth that they would reflect seriously upon the god of holy scripture and that our worship would be orchestrated in a manner consistent with who you are and what you command Go with us now and help us to have a a blessed week. And may we indeed know your nearness as our good. And we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.